So turn with me, please, to Genesis chapter 12. Uh, uh, And if you have a Bible in front of you, you'll find it useful to have it open in front of you. Uh, Don't be sloppy. (laughs) But let's uh, study God's Word together. And uh, last Sunday we were online, but we looked at uh, verses 1 to 9, the great promise to Abraham. And uh, what followed from that. And, and now we come to chapter 10. And we see um, a slightly different picture of Abraham, the man of faith. Uh, because we see uh, a rather uncertain faith. And uh, we'll, we'll try and make some sense of it in a moment. Let's read from verse 10. So remember that Abraham is in uh, the southern end of uh, Canaan. And he says, now there was a famine in the land. So Abram went down to Egypt to sojourn there, for the famine was severe in the land. When he was about to enter Egypt, he said to Sarai, his wife, I know that you are a woman beautiful in appearance, and when the Egyptians see you, they will say, this is his wife. Then they will kill me, and they will let you live. Say you are my sister, that it may go well with me because of you. And that my life may be spared for your sake. When Abram entered Egypt, the Egyptians saw that the woman was very beautiful. And when the princes of Pharaoh saw her, they praised her to Pharaoh. And the woman was taken into Pharaoh's house. And for her sake, he dealt well with Abram. And he had sheep, oxen, male donkeys, male servants, female servants, female donkeys and camels. But the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, What is this that you have done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she is my sister so that I took her for my wife? Now then, here is your wife. Take her and go. And Pharaoh gave men orders concerning him, and they sent him away with his wife and all that he had. So we started looking at uh, the appearance of Abram in chapter 11, verse 27. And before that, the the first 11 chapters, um, uh, while they show us that while there are individual characters Uh, highlighted such as Noah, Moses is painting in those 11 chapters uh, a picture of the general condition of mankind that sin has come into the world and sin has gone deep into the heart causing the most egregious sins to be committed including murder, uh, indeed many murders and it's also expanded across society so The whole of mankind is uh, tainted with this problem of sin. And the God-denying, rebellious heart of humankind is exposed in the first 11 chapters. But of course, that's not all that we found in Genesis 1 to 11. That the seed of God's, the the thread of God's grace uh, is uh, woven all the way through this, these 11 chapters. Uh, 
beginning, it's uh, Genesis 3.15. You may remember the, the promise that was given. It was said to the serpents, but it involved man, the woman, and, uh, where God promises that the seed of the serpent's head will be crushed by the seed of the woman, though his heel will be crushed too. And uh, when we looked at that, it's, of course, uh, an anticipation, uh, a, a, a seed promise that there will be a seed who will come, uh, Jesus Christ will come and destroy the works of the devil. And that thread of grace is, is woven through those first 11 chapters. And when we come to chapter 12, uh, that promise, as we saw last time, is is renewed and strengthened. Uh, The promise becomes uh, bigger, more defined, like a seed that begins to sprout shoots. And the rest of the book of Genesis, from chapter 11 through to 50, is the story of Abraham's family. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and then Jacob's sons, the 12 sons, uh, and particular Joseph. And it comes to the end where... The people, the children of Joseph, uh, the tribes, sorry, the tribes of Jacob have been saved from famine. And it sets the scene for the book of Exodus. And God's work, you see, in the midst of all of this, continues on relentlessly. God is at work in bringing his grace. It is the story, of, of course, uh, primarily about how God keeps his promises. Ultimately culminating in the seed who would come, the seed Jesus Christ. And last time we saw, uh, last Sunday we saw how from Abraham's perspective, out of the blue, God had intervened in his life. He had come uh, and said to Abraham uh, to go, uh, take up his family and, uh, and go to Canaan, go to the land that I will show you. He didn't say Canaan at this point. Abraham wasn't quite sure, I think, where he was going. But Abraham had basically been traveling with his father, uh, Terah, uh, from Ur of the Chaldeans, uh, out, out in the east. And he had traveled uh, along the Fertile Crescent. So Ur of the Chaldeans is probably in uh, Mesopotamia, um, modern-day Iraq, between the Tigris and Euphrates. And he had been traveling along that Fertile Crescent that follows the, the rivers, uh, goes northwest, and then... Uh, sorry, it goes northwest that way, from your perspective, uh, and then comes down and goes southwards into the land of Canaan, that fertile crescent. And it's that journey that uh, Abraham is, is taking. And we saw that God had uh, given Abraham a promise in the first three verses of chapter 12. And there were three elements to those promises. First of all, land. Uh, Abraham didn't know where the land was. But he had to get up and move with his wife, Sarah, and all, the, all, the, all his servants, all their belongings. And uh, only when he gets there, into Canaan, in verse 7, uh, God says, the Lord appeared to Abraham and said, and that's a, what, the first appearance of the Lord in the book of Genesis, a manifestation of his appearance. Uh, to your offspring I will give this land. Very simple. To your offspring I will give this land. The, the land you're standing in, This is the land I'm going to give you. Though he would not himself uh, see the whole land come to him. That awaits a later stage in history. The second part of the promise is that he, Abraham, would be made into a great nation. Which is a bit of a problem. Uh, It's such a 
a strange statement because his wife has been barren. And uh, Abraham's 75 at this point. His wife, is, we find out later, is 10 years younger, 65. And it looks like, you know, chance, the chance of having children is gone. And yet God says, you're going to be a great nation. How can that be? That's an amazing promise of God uh, to Abraham. And then the third part of the blessing is that he and his offspring would be a blessing to the nations. Not just to his own people, but to the nations, all the nations, all the people groups of the world. And we get, perhaps get hints of that blessing as he interacts with some people. But the fulfillment of that blessing would only come in generations to come. In fact, it would only come really in the New Testament. Where Jesus says to his disciples, go into the world and make disciples of all nations. That's when the blessing is going to come. You see, God's time scale is huge. You know, we, we, got, we want God in our, li- our little lives to, to act right now and do this and do that. God's time scale is huge. And it's our job to, to go along with that flow of God's gracious providence and his redeeming grace. So at this point, it's worth just reflecting on what Hebrews says about Abraham. Uh, in Hebrews chapter 11, uh, you might want to look at this, uh, if you can find it. Here we go, Hebrews 11, uh, verse 8. By faith, Abraham obeyed when he was called to go out to a place that he was to receive as an inheritance. And he went out not knowing where he was going. By faith, he went to live in the land of promise as in a foreign land, living in tents with Isaac and Jacob, heirs with him of the same promise. For he was looking forward to the city that has foundations, whose designer and builder is God. By faith, Sarah herself received power to conceive when she was past age, since she was considered, since she considered him faithful, who had promised. Let me read on a bit more. Therefore, from, from one man and him as good as dead were born descendants, as many as the stars of heaven, and as many as the innumerable grains of sand on the seashore. All these died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeted them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on the earth. We can live in the promise, but die before the promise is fulfilled. And it reminds us, of course, that the time skills of God are, are huge. Uh, the things that God promises uh, go far beyond our mere lifespan. We noted previously that all those promises are fulfilled in Jesus Christ. It is Jesus Christ who offers us a, a new heavens and a new earth. The land, the idea of land grows uh, through the Old Testament to become a new heavens and a new earth. It is Jesus, in Jesus that God the Father is gathering a holy nation, a people for his own possession. The church of Jesus Christ. And it's through the gospel message, uh, as it is proclaimed by the apostles and then by the church to the world, that the blessings of that promise to Abraham come to the world. 
Ultimately, you see, it's through this, that seed of Abraham, Jesus Christ, that these promises will be fulfilled and indeed are being fulfilled today. And meanwhile, you and I, we need to live by faith in the promises of God. We live by faith, not by sight, says Paul. Well, it's that question of continuing faith in the promises that comes into focus, I think, in this passage that we looked at. Because even though Abraham has received this great threefold promise, we find that straight away his faith is put to the test. Because in this passage we see an uncertain faith, a troubled faith. But then we also see a God who intervenes. And helps with that uncertain faith. And in this story, we actually see a a pattern, which actually corresponds to a bigger pattern of God's saving grace. And we'll look at that as we come to the end. So first of all, this uncertain faith. We saw that verses 1 to 9 paints this marvelous picture. Uh, God commands and he promises Uh, We see Abraham uh, ready in obedience and he takes up uh, the promise and obeys the Lord, trusting him as he obeys. Uh, And then we see the assurance, we saw in verse 7, the assurance that uh, Abraham is given as he stands in the place place of promise. And it's a wonderful picture. Uh, Command, promise, obedience and assurance. That's a pattern for the Christian life. Receive the commands, receive the promises, uh, obey the Lord. Receive assurance from him. Uh, It's a great pattern for the Christian life. But the problem is that life is not always simple, is it? Uh, You and I know that our faith can be faltering. Uh, And sometimes we can uh, intellectually accept the the promises of God. uh, And be excited by them. We can be full of excitement at the promises of God. And yet our hearts can be outposts of fear and concern as we uh, set about obeying. I hope you know that. I certainly know that. And you see, the circumstances that we face in our lives in the providence of God can be oftentimes, often the times when the nature of our believing can be exposed So we can believe the promises in a a kind of theoretical, abstract sense. But when it comes down to the the details of life and how to live in our lives, suddenly we find our faith just a little bit wavery and wobbly. And I think something like that is going on here with Abraham. Abraham's in Canaan, and Abraham's been promised this land, But remember, it's already occupied. The Canaanites are there. So he can't have it just yet. He can't just move in and take over. But what he does is he builds altars. Uh, He built two altars. He built one in Shechem in verse 7 and one in Bethel in verse 8. And these are acts of, of worship to God, recognizing the promise of God. And uh, giving thanks for the promise that is yet to be fulfilled. And no doubt making sacrifice for his own sins. That's what an altar's for. What's the point of an altar if you don't make sacrifices? Reckon- and committing himself in an act of consecration to the Lord. And 
Abraham has traveled, therefore, from north to south, all the way through the land, ending up at the Negev in the south. So in verse 10, we come to the point where it says, there is famine in the land. There's Canaan is, can't have, hasn't got enough food. They can't, there isn't enough food to eat the people. There's not enough food for the animals. And so in the providence of God, they have to leave behind the promised land for the time being and go south to Egypt to look for food. And Abraham anticipates a problem that has to do with his wife. She's a very beautiful woman. Now remember, at this point, Abraham is 75. And 17.7 says that uh, Sarai is uh, 10 years younger, 65. And these are days still when the characters in the Bible live about twice as long as as us. Abraham dies at age 75. That's twice as long as uh, today's lifespan. And that's not something we can necessarily understand at the It does suggest that the whole aging process is perhaps delayed at this stage in history. But it may be that uh, Sarai, therefore, though she's 65, she may not look like today's 65-year-olds might look. (laughs) And she's a beautiful woman. But she's certainly past childbearing age. But she's a beautiful woman. And suddenly those... You know, those of you husbands who have beautiful wives, and you all do, you sometimes have these fears, don't you? What do other, other people, other men think of my wife? And Abraham suddenly fears that his wife is so beautiful that actually his life might be in danger. Maybe the Egyptians are not as hospitable as the Canaanites. Maybe they just say, well, they see something they want and they, they're going to take it. And so, and he fears for his life. So he says to his wife, and this is where there's a flaw in Abraham's character. He says, say you're my sister. Uh, you know, tell a lie. Maybe, maybe he's thinking, you know, if I'm, I'm not too closely associated with her, then maybe I'll be spared death. And actually, if I, maybe if I'm her, her brother, and they see me as her brother, then that can offer some protection to her and to me. Now, at this point, I'm sure it's right to say that Abraham believed all the promises of God that he had received in the first three verses of this chapter. He is not doubting any of the promises. But the promises and believing the promises have not filtered through into how he relates to God in this. Because at no point, at least it's not recorded here, does, at any point does Abraham seek the Lord's wisdom. In what he should do about this. This fear that he has. He decides that he's going to work it out for himself. So it's almost like he's taken the promises of God. And he has parked them. As a, a, a truth that's out there. Some kind of uh, you know, ornament. <laughs> that you put in your mantelpiece. And you dust down occasionally. But you never use. And meanwhile life goes on. That sinful life carries on. And so he's thinking up this rather strange 
strategy. Perhaps what he didn't bank on was that news of Sarai's beauty not only spread to the, you know, the people around him, but actually it got to the, the king's palace, to Pharaoh. The princes heard about it, saw her, started telling Pharaoh, and Pharaoh got interested. And Pharaoh wants her. And, you know, what brother is going to resist a great king in saying, I would like to marry your sister. I want to take her into my household as my wife. And so Abraham has this half-baked scheme to protect himself, but it ends up with him giving away his wife to Pharaoh with the risk to her honor as a wife that her reputation would be tarnished by adultery. And I think I'm pretty certain that adultery would have taken place. It's not said so directly, but the idea that a beautiful woman that suddenly caught the attention of Pharaoh and she is taken into his household as his wife, that he would not have sexual relations with her would be a surprise. It's quite likely that he did. And Sarah has to go along with this. So you see what's happening here? That Abraham lies. He's worked out his own strategy involving a lie. He gets his wife into a terrible situation in order to protect himself. Walter Scott, the great Scottish writer, said, Oh, what a tangled web we weave when first we practice to deceive. You start off with a little deception, and then it weaves a tangled web of, 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 of a mess of life. And we ask ourselves, where is this man of faith that was in verses 1 to 9? Where is this man who is willing to move his family without knowing where he was going? All this faith seems to almost have disappeared. I wonder if you've ever had that kind of experience. You've uh, uh, you find you've, got, you've had an experience of, uh, I don't know, going to, going to a conference or something, Christian conference. You come back full of beans, you know, faith beans. You come, you come really excited about all the things you've learned and you, you feel full of faith and you, want to, you believe all the things you've heard and you trust God and, you, and suddenly real life hits you. And bang, you suddenly, life seems to collapse around you and the reality hits you and the bubble bursts. And your faith and your zeal seem to evaporate. It's the kind of thing that can happen in the transition from Sunday to Monday. It's the kind of thing that can happen in the transition on Sunday lunchtime. When you've decided that's it. Full of faith. You love the word of God. And then suddenly real life seems to break into your life. And you make up your own plans. And you do your own thing. And suddenly you've woven this tangled web of deceit. Deceit of your own heart. Maybe deceit of those around you. How easy it is to forget all those promises that God has given you. On all the encouragement you've had. How easy it is to move from faith to fear. 
And this is what we see in Abraham. He believed God, but he thought he could just help God along and do his own thing. Uh, and after all, I mean, there may be a rationale behind what he's saying. He might say to himself, well, God's given me this promise of a seed that's to come. And therefore, I've got to keep myself alive. <laughs> and so he lies to help God's promises along. Rather than seeking God. Seeking God's face. Seeking his wisdom. Seeking to grow in maturity. And this is what I think happens when someone professes faith but has not learned what the true heart of faith is, is like. It's not just intellectual assent. It's that ongoing fellowship with God where you seek to grow in walking with him. You know, and fear doesn't stop at fear. It, it, it turns into deceit. And a willingness to shed the things you value. Now, do we get the impression that Abraham didn't care about his wife? No, of course he cared, cared deeply about his wife. He loved his wife. He was, she was a beautiful wife. She, uh, she adored her. But in the fear for his own life... He seeks the path of self-preservation and is willing to sacrifice even his wife. And he didn't seek God in that moment. Who knows what other options might have opened up in the face of the seeming rock and hard place. But he never asked the Lord. And it's in this moment of crisis that we see Abraham being unfaithful and forgetting God. And it's in our moments of crisis too that we are tempted to forget God who has made over his wonderful promises to us in Jesus Christ. And therefore we find ourselves in a mess. It's always useful to, when we think our lives are in a mess, not simply to blame other people. Not even simply to blame God, but to actually say, I examine my own heart. Have I lived in, in, as one who has faith in Jesus Christ at all? Or, or have I just made it an artificial uh, faith, an intellectual faith, not a real living faith? Abraham's life, I think, is a warning to us. To beware of fear. A fear that can lead to lying and abandoning your loved ones. Let me move on now because God does not leave Abram in that state. Uh, Of course God has his purposes and his plans. And uh, God will fulfill all that he has promised. And so we see in verses 14 to 17, sovereign intervention. Um. So what happens next? So Sarai is taken into the home of Pharaoh. Um, she's taken into the harem. Um, and as Abraham has, has hoped, his life is spared. In fact, it's actually quite profitable for him. Uh, Pharaoh deals with him well. Uh, he gains camels and donkeys and, and so on. He becomes very rich. And uh, it's one of these interesting paradoxes that you do wrong and you lie and, and you end up rich. That's possible. Um, That's the way the world works sometimes. But notice what else is going on. Verse 17. 
the Lord afflicted Pharaoh and his house with great plagues because of Sarai, Abram's wife. The Lord acts to bring about plagues. And we might think this is unfair. Uh, Pharaoh perhaps is a, uh, you know, we see him perhaps as an innocent party. He just wants to marry a beautiful woman. (laughs) Why does he deserve this? Well, we need to see the bigger picture, of course. Remember that Pharaoh is part of a culture that has long since rejected God uh, and instead has turned to pagan idolatry. And ancient Egypt was notable for its worship of gods that are part animal, part human. So here's a, here's a culture that uh, is full of idolatry and it's something that God hates. So in some respects, it's no surprise that uh, affliction comes upon Pharaoh at the hand of God. It is, in a sense, an interim judgment on Pharaoh for all his sin. But why now? Why does, why does the Lord do that at this point? Well, of course, God is not just about judgment. He has made promises about the future. And those promises involve Abraham. And there is a plan for him to progress. And what we're seeing here is God intervening with the judgment just at the right time in order to fulfill his plans. God's judgment is always connected with his salvation. Judgment comes in order to, per- to pursue salvation. And Abraham needs to get out of that situation. And so God steps in to get him out of it. And where Abraham proved himself to be unfaithful to God, God shows himself to be faithful to his, all the promises he has made. And friends, that's a, that is a great comfort to all of us. We mess up. We mess up big time. We are unfaithful. But in all of it, for those of us who are Christians, God is faithful to us. And he helps us. And God shows himself faithful constantly to us. Every Christian is chosen by God. Just like Abraham was chosen to go to uh, the promised land, so every Christian is chosen by God. And that means that God is faithful to every Christian believer. So even when we mess up and we indulge in our sins and we succumb to fear, he nevertheless remains faithful to us who has a part for us in all of his plans which he will carry out. So on a a superficial reading, verse 17 looks a bit severe, but look a little deeper And we realize God is actually using it as a means to keep his promises and do what he desires. And actually the way that this this passage closes is with something of a shock. Because Abraham is rebuked for his fear, uh, for his fear by this pagan idolater. Did you notice that? In verses 18 and 19, Pharaoh asks Abram a series of questions. And it's, uh, what an interrogation. So Pharaoh called Abram and said, what is this you've done to me? Why did you not tell me she was your wife? Why did you say she's my sister so that I I took her for my wife? Uh, Now then, here is your wife, take her and go. And Pharaoh rebukes Abraham through his his interrogation. It's an embarrassing uh, setting for Abram. Sometimes embarrassing for us as Christians, that sometimes non-Christians, that can call us to account. 
for our sins. Abram should have known better. Should have done better. Should have trusted the Lord for a solution. And a pagan idolater is rebuking him for his sins. How shameful, I think, for a Christian to be dressed down by a non-Christian. For a Christian worker in the office to be dressed down by a non-Christian manager. Do you get the picture? But this is what happened to Abraham. Berated by an idolater. And we should learn from this. Let me finish as we come to a close. With a comment about the bigger picture. What does this story tell us about the bigger picture of God's pattern for salvation? There are, there are, of course, many features in the Old Testament that anticipate the ultimate coming of Jesus Christ uh, and the ultimate salvation that he brings. Uh, one of the obvious features is the prophecies. We just had the Christmas period, and we looked at, uh, we've come across some of the prophecies that Matthew and Luke uh, refer to in the coming and the birth of Jesus. And so there are prophecies in the Old Testament that... Uh, are fulfilled in Jesus' life, death, and resurrection. Another feature of the Old Testament is the symbolism that is pre- the, the, the series of symbolisms that are present in the Old Testament that point forward to the truth of Jesus Christ. Think of the, the water that flows from the rock in the wilderness during the Exodus. Think of bread from heaven, the manna from heaven. Think of the sacrificial lamb. Uh, think of the tree of life in the Garden of Eden. Think of the form of the tabernacle and temple. All of these things uh, paint a picture of a future salvation fulfilled in Jesus Christ. Uh, the, the Old Testament is full of symbolism that points forward. But another feature of the Old Testament that points forward to Christ is actually found in patterns that are found in the stories. This is really important. Some of you are dozing off this morning, and you need to wake up. (laughs) This is really important. There are patterns in the Old Testament that prepare the way for Jesus Christ. And we see one of them here. This pattern of the chosen one of God going to a strange land, and then being saved by God's gracious intervention. It's a very simple pattern. The chosen one goes into a foreign land and gets saved by God's gracious intervention. Here it is in Abraham. It will happen to the people of Israel as they go down to Egypt, again, fleeing from famine. But they have to be redeemed from slavery by divine intervention. We see it again when Judah is exiled to Babylon. Now why do they, what is one of the symptoms of God's judgment in their exile to Babylon? Why? They turned to Egypt for help instead of to God. Read it in the book of Isaiah. God's chosen people go to a foreign land and end up in exile and have to be redeemed. By the intervention of God. And all of this is preparing the way 
for Jesus Christ to come. And Jesus himself, you remember the story, we've looked at it. The story of how Jesus and Joseph and Mary, under the oppression of Herod the Great, have to go down to Egypt. And it's only through divine intervention that the Son of God can come back. And indeed that prepares the way for Jesus himself to go down into death and for God the Father to raise him from death to bring salvation to all the people who are in Christ. See how the patterns work? I I encourage you to look for them as you read the narrative of the Old Testament. The pattern of God's saving grace in all of these is net it's used for the Christian church. So take the Exodus, for example. In 1 Corinthians chapter 10, or Hebrews 3 and 4, the Exodus is used as a pattern to explain the saving of the people of God, the church of Jesus Christ. These things are examples for us. But they are redemptive historical examples for us. Not moral examples to show us how God brings about salvation. And I mention all this because although there is much in this story about Abraham's sojourn to Egypt that will cause us to address our own fears, the great encouragement for us in all this is that in spite of our weakness, our immaturity of faith, our foolishness, God is in the business of saving his people. And he shows us time and time again in the Bible that when he has his hand upon you, He will never leave you nor forsake you. He may rebuke you, but he will never leave you. That is our God, and you can count on him. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for your saving work in the life of Abraham and how it foreshadows the saving work of God in Jesus Christ for us. We pray as we come to you with a faltering faith, Lord, we say, I believe, help my unbelief. Help us to be strengthened. Help us to use the means of grace that you have given us to grow in grace. For we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.